you know, to come back year after year to see a summit like this grow is really a very good feeling. Uh, and uh, you are right, uh, Rudra, that I did push it in the early years. I'm not sure it was very gentle. Uh, but uh, but the fact is, really, uh, you know, when I look at the reach and the impact, uh, uh, it's, there's a sort of a lot of satisfaction in it. I hope you'll keep growing. Uh, I think the theme which has been picked uh, is particularly timely uh, because today technology is very much at the heart of geopolitics. Uh, you could, of course, argue that it was always so. It was always so because, you know, whether it was nuclear or whether it was space or the Internet or artificial intelligence, I mean, it's actually, if you look at the quantum jumps in history, the quantum jumps in history parallel with some time lag quantum jumps in technology. And, uh, and it's not just in the modern era. I mean, you can go back to metallurgy, you can go back to shipbuilding, you can go back to aviation. That is, that is really the story of uh, both human progress and, in a sense, of competitive uh, national uh, politics. And it has led to uh, a number of policy outcomes. You know, countries have uh, fashioned their national security decisions. They have made decisions about uh, what kind of, uh, uh, you know, influence they will get by applications of technology. Uh, and it's not just applying technology. It's also uh, uh, sometimes restricting it. It's... Uh, uh, it's uh, steering it. Uh, so, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, I mean, in a sense, uh, when I was thinking about the subject today, I was reminded of my own PhD, which was about uh, 45 years ago. Uh, and, at, you know, the subject I started off was really how U.S. decision makers who were poised to uh, the Manhattan Project. I mean, they knew they had something very big in their hands. And they are now debating among themselves, how do we, how, you know, what are the geopolitical implications of this? You know, how, have we given too much to the Russians or, or Soviets at that time? How, how does it change our strategy to bring the, uh, the Pacific theater to a close? So uh, the, the reason I, I sort of highlight that uh, as an opening remark uh, is really that, uh, you know, when we think today of competitive politics, sharper contradictions, uh, I think we should be more and more cognizant that it's going to be driven by technology and also be uh, visible or uh, be, be reflected uh, in the technology debates. Now, I had six uh, uh, basic points to make today. Uh, one... Uh, and I say this especially uh, to my own friends and colleagues and uh, people in India, we cannot be agnostic about technology. Uh, and we have to stop pretending that there's something neutral about technology. Technology is no more neutral than economics or uh, any other activity. And, uh, you, know, uh, we, we, you know, you may speak about uh, whether it is data or uh, uh, oil or oil as, you know, uh, data as the new oil. The fact is more and more things are technologically driven and 
we need to understand that there's a very strong political connotation which is inbuilt really uh, into into technology. I mean, uh, uh, orthodox way of looking at it would be to go into the world of techno export controls and technology controls, which is still very, very relevant. In fact, in the last few weeks and months, it has become even more so. But even, I would say, technology in terms of uh, uh, how, uh, you know, you influence uh, uh, politics and uh, how you actually shape decision-making in different societies. My second point would be for technology and geopolitics, the obvious big picture context is globalization. Uh, and uh, if you, in fact, you look at globalization, uh, in essence, I mean, what is globalization? It is about economy, it is about technology, it is about mobility. So uh, we have to understand today the globalization big picture is very much at the heart of the of geopolitics and the it's a false argument to present it as are you for globalization or against globalization i don't think today anybody can be against it because it's such a deep reality i think the right argument is are you for collaborative globalization or are you for a globalization model which allows domination uh, by a few players uh, and so, so how flat or in a sense and how broad is your globalization model? I think that to my mind is the real debate. And that debate is going to be very much driven uh, by technology. And uh, therefore to my mind neither technology nor globalization should be considered really economic issues. I think they're very strategic issues. Uh, as a political scientist, I regard them as a political science issue rather than economics issue. Um, my third point, we live in an era where in many ways the Westphalian model of international relations is over. Uh, for us in this era of technological interpenetration, to say that, you know, uh, all states are equal, everybody is a black box and it doesn't matter what happens inside that black box, it does matter what happens inside the black box. I think we people, especially in India in the last two years, two and a half years, have woken up to the fact, where does our data reside? Who processes, who harvests our data? What do they do with it? I think that's a very, very uh, key question. And when we look at our partners, whether it's technology partners, strategic partners, political partners, I think the quality of partners and the sociology of partners uh, I think is a is a very very uh, important point. All partners are not the same, and therefore today, trust and transparency uh, have become key uh, issues. Uh, we have in a domain like telecom already seen in India the concept of a trusted provider. Uh, I think in the digital side, we are going to hear more and more the concept of trusted geographies. So the moment you start talking trusted geographies, the geopolitical connotation of that is very, very clear. My fourth point, just as the Westphalian model has started to uh, become less relevant, uh, obviously when it comes to uh, um, supply chains, the Nagoya model has also started, uh, I think, to become less relevant. Uh, between COVID, conflict, and climate change, uh, just in time is just too risky.
So the, the world, and I think particularly large countries with deep interests, are actually moving to a just-in-case uh, approach rather than a just-in-time uh, approach. And a lot of economic choices and technology choices are going to be driven by a just-in-case approach. So if you actually have resilience and reliability in supply chains and you have trust and transparency when it comes to data, I would suggest if you add these uh, two concepts up, you're going to, the, the outcome you're going to get is a very different geopolitical uh, outcome than it used to be uh, before. Uh, the fifth point I would make is regarding India itself. Our sense of technology in the past has been very narrow. Uh, you know, and I speak here particularly from a governmental perspective. Typically, if you ask people in government, you know, what's your sense of strategic technologies, they would say, well, defense, nuclear, space. I think that's like 50 years out of date. Today, you know, there's, there's a, a completely different world there where the building of deep strengths is actually going to determine our capabilities. So to my mind, uh, in a way, you know, what we in India call Atmanirbhar Bharat, which is like a self-reliant India, you can say a kind of an economic strategic autonomy, that is today going to be key for global rebalancing. That big players are going to consciously strive to be technologically uh, more I don't want to be self-sufficient, but technologically more capable in order for rebalancing uh, to actually uh, take place. And finally, uh, geopolitics ultimately does come down to partners and choices and with whom do you have what relationship of what consequence. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are different, uh, there are different uh, ways you can slice up multipolarity. You can look at multipolarity, you know, who are your key partners politically? Who are your key partners in trade? Who are your key partners in energy? And the answer will always be very different. So when it comes to technology, because technology is going to be a key criteria today, I would say uh, our key partners, and this is an Indian uh, view, or this is my view of what should be India's view, uh, which is I feel who gives us access, number one, who is our collaborator, and who is our market. To my, uh, you know, uh, to, to my view, these should be the criteria of, you know, which direction the needle uh, should move. And if you look at India's geopolitical positioning, I would say it should be a kind of a net, net assessment net assessment of politics, of energy, of economics, but increasingly of where our technological uh, interests lie. And our positioning should really give a substantial weight uh, to that uh, technology factor. So let me just conclude by saying that uh, when we speak about the rise of India, the rise of India is deeply linked to the rise of Indian technology. Uh, and uh, uh, I think Rudra spoke about semiconductors. It could be semiconductors. It could be 5G and onwards. Uh, it could be AI. It could be uh, more commercial uh, space launches and 
satellite fabrication. But uh, in the world that we are in today, uh, uh, I would still say uh, there might be greater disorder under the heavens, but there is more opportunity in that disorder. So once again, uh, thank you all for uh, being here this morning, and uh, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. Is much of the world is. Thank you, Minister, for that uh, stimulating set of remarks uh, to kickstart the GTS uh, 2022. As Rudro said earlier, I mean, that really we started this out with your encouragement and support, and the ministry has backed us since then. So we really, uh, six years of this enterprise uh, has made the GTS one of the leading forums today uh, in India and increasingly in the world. Uh, to discuss the technology uh, policy policy issues. Now, what I thought I'll start by asking you uh, is much of the world has, much has changed in the world since 2016 when we had the first GTS. And the most important change, which you referred to in your opening remarks, uh, was the nature of globalization. So when we say the, the Nagoya model just in time, uh, or whether it is the weaponization of interdependence, so you articulated this concept, but when you say we are not going to do the old globalization, what is your approach to the new globalization? Uh, is it completely decoupling? Is it about doing everything at home? Uh, or is it somewhere somewhat different? You know, uh, uh, a sort of a few caveats there. Uh, I'm not sure globalization changed so much after 2016. I think the debates and awareness about the real nature of globalization changed. There were things which were happening up to 2016, which uh, in our um, more sanguine world, uh, we uh, we were complacent about. Uh, and a lot of these were, you know, uh, it's, it's actually very interesting if you look at the trigger events, you know. Uh, in a way, Brexit was a trigger event. Uh, Trump's election was a trigger event. COVID has been much more than a trigger event. It's regular uh, disruptions of the global economy due to uh, extreme uh, climate. But uh, the key to my mind is actually a sharper realization that big production shares, big market shares, big resource shares are all going to be leveraged and leveraged right in your face. So the idea that, you know, everybody was going to be delicate about it and going to have rules and will work out something which is good for everybody, that's not the direction the world has gone. We have actually seen uh, very tough decisions made by some countries. Uh, tough, not in the difficulty of the decision, tough in terms of the impact it has on the rest of the world. So uh, I would, uh, if you ask me, so therefore what kind of globalization... Uh, to my mind, uh, certainly uh, many uh, more countries, I mean, you need, in a way, much more decentralized globalization. You need many more centers of production. Uh, and I, I, 
to cite to you a very obvious example today, which is semiconductors. That the concern in the world about the concentration of production when it comes to uh, chips is, is uh, you know, uh, very, very apparent. So, if you are going to move in terms of de-risking the global economy, uh, a large part of it will have to be to de-risk the technology uh, sources and the uh, production sources associated with it. So, do, uh, you know, when when uh, Government of India talks about Atmanirbhar Bharat, you know, the idea of a much more self-reliant uh, uh, India, you know, people kind of, obviously in a, in a politically uh, polemical world, people say, well, you're going back to pre-92, etc. No, we're not. I mean, no, nobody in their right mind uh, would would even think of that. I think what people the the thinking process is really how do I have how how do I limit my vulnerabilities? How do I have greater uh, production possibilities in India? Some of it has to do with the risks uh, and the uh, you know the uh, worries about external exposure. Some of it is about our own capabilities. You know, a country like India, it should not have the kind of manufacturing we have today. I mean, we are grossly under manufacturing. And, you know, when I hear people saying, well, you know, our future is in services, I mean, that's simply not true. You know, our future is also in services, definitely. Uh, but you cannot say that we will grow to be a major power and we're going to give manufacturing a pass. And that is why PLI, for example, the strong support which is today being given uh, to different uh, domains of manufacturing is, is so vital. One of the uh, features of the last 30 years of globalization was also the world of technology mm -hmm. became increasingly integrated, I mean, barring the security-related constraints that existed. For example, American venture capital uh, in China Apple's production in China, the links between Silicon Valley and China. That's what produced the explosive growth. Uh, two things have changed. I think one, the U.S.-China conflict. The other is the recognition, as you mentioned in your speech, that you cannot simply leave everything to a dispersed chain. Uh, therefore, you need to have some capabilities inside. I mean, no, uh, Raj, I think it's more than that. See, when when the debate moves in the direction of civil-military fusion, when you say, you know, this belief that uh, there are technologies and uh, uh, activities that are benign and we can compartmentalize it and there's that tough world which is a national security world and there's this nice world where uh, market economics, it will be business as usual. I think that belief has collapsed. I mean, uh, you you look our our actions for example uh, regarding uh, apps uh, in 2020 you know uh, was actually driven by a concern of where is our data going and where are as i said where our data going is no longer a matter of business and economics it's a matter of national security so i i would say in a in a interesting way because everything has become, web, you know, everything is being weaponized in this world of ours. So I have to change my approach to the extent of where I should be protective about my interests. I have to define my protective zone in a much broader sense. Now, obviously, no country 
uh, you know can really uh, be an island so which is where trusted partners and trusted providers and trusted geographies come so there would be partners where i would have the confidence that uh, you know to a fair degree not an absolute confidence that there will, there will be shall i say the possibility of misuse of my data would be much less because there would be safeguards in those societies or those governments or those economies there would be countries where it would not be there and those will be partly influencing my choices if you go back uh, i mean i think one of the tensions in the framework uh, that you identified is how much internal how do you develop your internal capabilities because without those capabilities you can't really navigate the 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 world of uh, technology but at the same time the need for partnerships the need for engaging trusted partners uh, for example i mean if you go back to the 60s i mean india was among the first countries to develop you know electronics uh, all across asia i mean homi baba under the department of atomic energy started a whole the electronics corporation of india but then we turned to complete self sufficiency and we lost a lot of the ground uh, so today when you're talking about semiconductor manufacturing in india bringing people you know collaborating so is that a fundamental change from turning inwards to one where we collaborate with the partners so that our capabilities grow and it's also mutually beneficial to our partners you know uh, the last time i was in dc uh, i we had a meeting uh, in which there were people from the semiconductor industry there and one of them said that their estimate and it was a conservative estimate was that there were 40000 indian engineers employed by american companies uh, when it came to the uh, field of chips so the fact is there is already at an industry level uh, a much uh, a fairly deep connect and it's a connect which is in other parts of digital uh, business uh, it is there in other industries as well the world of policy the world of politics the world of national security cannot be divorced or cannot be in conflict with what is there in a sense on the street you know uh, so uh, my uh, my sense you know again i don't want uh you look in this country because of this model which gave us so much grief by the time we reached 92 uh the protectionism is a very easy word to throw at somebody and to kind of uh, delegitimize or to put them down but in the name of not being protectionist it mustn't be that you throw the baby out with the bath water i mean surely a country like this must have capabilities you know surely there must be you know there must be an industrial policy there must be a national security policy there must be a national security industrial policy uh, the, so uh, i i i think it's important to get the balance right it is also uh, it should be fair not to as i said use this throwback images to advocate you know a deindustrialized india as a disarmed india and which one of us wants to see unilateral disarmament in this competitive world okay. if you go back again to the uh, 60s when much of the advanced technologies began in india uh, our first reactor including the research reactors one was american one was canadian 
our first power reactor was an American General Electric. Our first satellite uh, was built by Ford Aerospace, and Ford doesn't exist, but uh, the space program has grown. So somewhere we went, you know, some things happened which kind of broke that initial enthusiasm between, you know, U.S. supporting us and then the 74 sanctions. Yes, yes. You know, it's an interesting point because I I wanted to keep my initial remarks short so I didn't come to that part. Look, what happened was the geopolitics of that era broke the connection or didn't break it, it diluted it very substantially. Today, we are talking of the impact of technology on geopolitics. I think it's equally important to look at the the converse, the impact of geopolitics on technology. That if you get your geopolitics right, in a way, there are a lot of technology benefits. You know, to my mind, the uh, it is uh, essential if if India is to grow, grow. You know, in the history, at least in modern history. Everybody has grown in partnership with somebody else. Everybody. There's nobody, you know, who, who sort of, uh, did it autarchically and... Yes, yes, right. So, we have to see today, you know, where are our interests and who are the, uh, the partners, uh, we should have. And that is why I said to me, my definition of our long-term partnerships is really where is it that our, technolo- our technologies and our capabilities will grow? Which means who gives you access? And they will only grow if it's a business. Which means, therefore, who gives you business? And they will grow when there is a, a human collaborative connect because at the end of the day, it is all up there. So where is it that there's actually a living bridge uh, uh, in technology? And to my mind, the answers are as plain as the nose on my face. Yeah, I mean, uh, looking at the... You know, it's quite clear that, look, uh, one of the things we did after 2019 when we walked out of RCEP was also to disconnect with the, with the Chinese uh, technology world. Our 2G, 3G, 4G, you know, grew no, on... That started, that started uh, from 2020. Yeah. yeah. But the RCEP was 2019. Yes, yeah. RCEP. And the 2020 yeah, right. onwards and during the pandemic. Now, looking at this whole, the new phase, I mean, how do we see the role of the private sector. I, mean, I think because if you look at the old age, I mean, it was really G to G. Much of the, as a developing country, much of the technological development was really done in the, in the government departments or government labs. But today, the, we've seen, for example, in space, how quickly the Indian private sector has responded to PM's appeal. We need more private sector. So is the state today, the government of India, ready to encourage the larger role of the private sector? whether it's nuclear, semiconductors, whether it is space, uh, how far and how fast can you push this policy? You know, uh, I don't think there's a single sweeping answer, but if you uh, sort of uh, factor in the undulations, I think, yes, overall, uh, I mean, after all, what is the purpose of the the production-linked incentives? It is actually to initially encourage businesses in various areas uh, to to invest and uh, create production capabilities and along with the production capabilities the larger uh, R&D uh, ecosystem which would go with it. Uh, if you ask me in recent times uh, I mean I would certainly say the uh, progress uh, uh, which has been made in regard to five, building 5G capabilities which is completely, you know there may be, there may be some really smart PSUs uh, you know the government owned uh, companies involved in it, 
but uh, it's largely a private sector. You mentioned space. I think you will definitely see that in the semiconductor space, that the semiconductor space will finally be, a, it's a private, you know, it's a business-dominated space. The, but the government has a role. It's a government's job to provide a kind of enabling uh, environment. Uh, I mean, just getting out of the way is no longer enough. You know, that's a, that's a expectation of the government from, of a pre-92 era, you know, where, uh, please do not interfere with me and let me do what I want. Yeah. I think today businesses are, uh, would be rightfully expecting a much greater support uh, uh, from the government uh, because that's really what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, uh, if you look at key technologies, I mean, you look at some of the recent legislation passed in the United States, and the entire East Asia has always been heavily government uh, supported anyway. So I, I think we need to look at what, you know, peer uh, players are doing. Because, you know, if you many times, you know, Indian, you know, policymakers keep talking about who's giving us technology. But in the case of the U.S., technology is owned privately. And the IP is owned privately. So, therefore, the question of developing mutually beneficial terms, that becomes quite critical rather than handing over the G, handing over to the, no, U.S. handing over to us. But really that... Uh, yes, but Raj, that, those, I think the conversations of those days are now behind us. Mm -hmm. I mean... When I look at, uh, say, uh, supply chain conversations today, uh, when I look at uh, some of the uh, critical emerging technologies, because, uh, by the way, some of this, a lot of this gets discussed in the Quad. Uh, some of it is discussed on uh, supply chain resilience. We, the Japanese and the Australians, have a group. A lot of it is direct discussions which we have sometimes with European partners, definitely with the United States. So uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, that uh, that kind of uh, technology demand uh, conversation has gone. I mean, obviously we would like uh, technology to flow, but you, you know, it's it's a bit like investment. I mean, there's a clear understanding that you got to earn it. Now, if you you mentioned Project Manhattan at the beginning, I mean, uh, one of the first things after the 45, what the Americans did was to cut off Britain. Mm -hmm. So the best friend and partner out of the nuclear cooperation. So today we see, look, the U.S. is emerging as the most important partner for us. But given our past experience, there is a lot of distrust whether, you know, the U.S. will once again impose sanctions. We've gone past that many of the technology sanctions regimes. How do you make sure that the nature of this engagement would be mutually beneficial so one side can't, you know, unilaterally terminate it? No, look, uh, uh, you know, this this uh, question of yours takes me back to some of the debates on our nuclear deal. And the uh, honest answer is, between sovereign states, at the end of the day, no agreement, you know, no assurance can ever give you permanent uh, comfort, uh, you know, on on a uncaveated basis. At the end of the day, it's a function of the state of the relationship. Now, uh, yes, there were experiences, uh, especially after 74. But I would then 
turn it around and say it's the same United States which has been our most forceful uh, advocate for joining the NSG, joining the MTCR, joining Vasanar, joining Australia Group. So, you know, finally, it's it's about the politics uh, of the day, and the politics of the day has changed profoundly. Otherwise, you would not have you would not have quad. Uh, or you know, I can give you other examples as well. So, I would today make my technology calculation. You know, if I remain, a, I'm not saying history is monk, okay? Uh, uh, history has a utility. But if you are constantly extrapolating difficult experiences, then, I mean, we are actually limiting our own possibilities. Now, that is, you know, that, that term which uh, Prime Minister Modi used about hesitations of history. That hesitation of history is is this uh, uh, suspicious mindset, which says, I had a bad experience once, therefore, you know, I will never cross the road again. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's not the way we are ever going to rise. So it's really the, the it, as you mentioned in your, in your opening, finally, this is about statecraft. This is about Absolutely. actually Absolutely. creating domestic capabilities, as well as navigating a world that is, you know, not benign or uh, always benign, that it is a question of developing leverages to negotiate with others so that we keep advancing uh, in a competitive world. Yes. Uh, it's a competitive world which we can sometimes convince ourselves is benign, yeah. but it is fundamentally competitive. But in a competitive world, it's not a Hobbesian world where it's all against all. I mean, I think like in civil society, international relations is also about finding, making relationships and building, you know, uh, the rules and the uh, ability to to work together. And uh, I, I would say that uh, today, you know, for me, some of the really interesting possibilities. I mean, we've just started engaging on the uh, on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So, where does IPF take us? Because, you know, I I saw a lot of uh, kind kind of uh, immediate knee-jerk judgment saying, IPF, there's nothing to it, you know, there's no FTA component to it, it doesn't discuss tariff. It's not even meant to, you know. Uh, I mean, the U.S. in this regard has been very upfront with all its IPF uh, partners. But there is a big technology element, there's a big supply chain element. So you have IPF, you have Quad, there are a whole lot of bilateral discussions uh, with, with different partners. And I, I do think that in many ways, and there are big debates going on in our own country. I mean, you've already had um, on the semiconductor the, the first agreement between Foxconn and Vedanta. My expectation is in the coming months you will see many more agreements uh, in, in, in that space. And today, you know, uh, this diversification of production, uh, this is, in the, you know, we are actually, we missed the bus the first time. Uh, I think we have a chance of boarding maybe not the same bus, but certainly uh, a significant uh, sort of opportunity for manufacturing, uh, uh, especially on the electronic side, is coming our way. I mean, a lot depends on how smart we are about it. See, I think what you're doing in the quad, I mean, the critical and emerging technologies, the sub trusted supply chain networks, etc., that's been at least visible publicly. 
But you also signed this Trade and Technology Council with Europe. So what are your expectations on that? I mean, Americans and the Europeans have also signed. Are we, what do you, what is, what are your goals for the, the council with the you Europeans? You know, uh, uh, to be honest, we haven't had our meeting thereafter because, uh, you know, partly the Ukraine war has, uh, uh, kind of sucked up all the oxygen, uh, there in, in Europe. Uh, we will, we will be hopefully doing our meeting, uh, at some point. So, uh, we've been far more engaging on IPEF. I mean, not out of intent, out of circumstances. Uh, then we have uh, on the TTC uh, with you. One of the interesting things, I mean, the last couple of days, uh, you had uh, Japan, UK, Italy signing an agreement to develop a fighter aircraft. Normally, you'd think the Japanese will go with the Americans. So there are multiple cross-cutting alliances that are emerging. Uh, are yes, we prepared yes. I mean, to... You have this Rapidus in Japan. Hmm. I mean, that itself, if you look at those Japanese companies involved, is a, is a big development. So in the end, it comes down to what you said about, you know, that a rising India must necessarily be a rising technological power. Mm -hmm. So in the process of building that capability, I think uh, the need to expand R&D within India, is there going to be some incentive so that we, we can only become one if the scale and intensity of uh, research and development in India can, can really expand? Look, I'm, I don't have jurisdiction on it and uh, it's not, you know, I cannot say anything in terms of government intent. Uh, but it's certainly, uh, I think, a natural part of the debate. Uh, for us uh, today to do uh, production-linked incentives itself yeah. uh, was a big step yeah. because, as I said, we had reached a stage where uh, conventional wisdom was we shouldn't be manufacturing. So we are turning this sort of ship around, but uh, my sense is there will be there will be many more debates because uh, we are looking really uh, at a world where uh, uh, whether it's technology to some degree, whether it is energy, uh, governments are getting more interventionist and uh, are giving uh, greater support in different ways. Uh, creating stronger enabling environments in their respective uh, uh, societies. So this this debate cannot be just a debate uh, within India. It has to be within India too, but it will also be impacted by what's happening with the rest of the world. One of the things you said, uh, one is to bring technology home, connect our market uh, to technology producing other countries outside, as well as you know, generate our own technology. But it's also about taking our technology abroad, right? I mean, um, you've been, you know, on the vaccines issue on uh, today, on, uh, you know, digital, you know. Uh, you know even on defense. Yeah. Even on defense, you yeah. know, because we do uh, defense licensing. You know, that part of it, I have some visibility of it uh, from the foreign ministry perspective. So you see a lot of very interesting players, uh, smaller companies, uh, very energetic in defense, you know, and very often, I mean, to be very honest, I haven't heard of 99% of these newer uh, players. So you, it's only when you see the licensing that you start uh, actually figuring out what's happening. So there's a lot happening out there. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect, I mean, I think as the nature of the technological revolution unfolds, the old rules are being reset globally. I mean, I think uh, what were negotiated uh, in the multilateral domain 
uh, for example, on the Outer Space Treaty, I mean, the kind of understandings that were developed in the late 60s today are not valid as human capacity to explore space, and the contestation between the major powers expands into space. Uh, so how effective is our participation in shaping those rules? Because it's interesting, in 67, uh, when Outer Space Treaty was being negotiated, India actually was among the drafters of the treaty. But today, as the rules change, are we ready to build those coalitions, which you talked about, uh, and actively shape the new rules under which uh, the outer space environment is going to be managed? Uh, you know, I, in a way, give you a broader answer than outer space. I think what we are going to see, if you're going to see an intensification in big power competition, uh, many agreements uh, of the past will not continue. We've already seen that in the last few years, okay? Many, you know, the agreements which have not been renewed. Uh, it will become much harder to have uh, uh, new understandings which impose constraints because the overall, uh, I won't say mood, but the overall outlook uh, is much more sharply competitive. So at the end of the day, you reach these understandings because everybody kind of takes a haircut to, yeah. to create a, a landing point. Uh, I think that willingness today to let go of your leads is less and less across domains. So I am generally not terribly optimistic about uh, new understandings actually on a multilateral or a plurilateral way uh, on the technology side because, you know, the world is – the entire world's foot today is on the accelerator. You know, the, yeah. to do a understanding, somebody has to pull up the brake. I think as we look ahead, I mean, I think it's not pure multilateralism, but like-minded coalitions are the ones that are going to actually – where we participate with our trusted partners to shape the rules of the international system rather than the UN or some other uh, global body. You know. Yes, but those would be more collaborative and promotional. You know, li see, like-minded partners will not, uh, like-minded partners will not impose restrictions among themselves because the one who's not like-minded then has a free pass. Yeah. The like-minded partners usually will, when they meet, will talk about how to enhance each other's capabilities. I think, uh, you know, I've kind of overshot my time. Uh, we can just go to the floor for a couple of questions. Maybe we'll take uh, three questions from both sides, and then uh, we will then after that bring so anybody here who wants to ask a question. Yeah. Uh, Anirudh? Yeah. And there are microphones, I believe, on both sides. So those of you who want at the back, you can go to the left flank or the right flank uh, to, to ask a question. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Raja. Uh, hi, uh, good morning, uh, Minister. So I actually wanted to ask you if you can elaborate more on the piece that you mentioned around climate, right? So much like technology has been shaping geopolitics and vice versa, my own sense from your remarks and my own sense is that climate will start impacting geopolitics and vice versa a lot more in the coming decades. So we'd love to hear more of your views on that, how you anticipate that. And related to that, uh, the question comes, how can India start to develop its capabilities on the climate tech side, not just on the internet, semiconductor, AI tech side, um, so that we become a key player in that aspect of technology also in the coming decades? 
Nivruti, I mean, you had any question to the minister? No. Anyone at the back who wants to either go to the microphones on the side? Yes, sir. Please introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, my name is Rijal Sajsev. I'm from IIIT Bangalore. So, uh, Minister, I really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, I just had a quick question. Can you speak up a bit. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. So, um, you talked a lot about trusted areas and um, economic collaboration as well as technological collaboration. But I was just wondering, I mean, considering the G20 where India is taking on a presidential role, uh, what happens between a, a system, say, like the EU GDPR and the draft data protection bill? Where, I mean, in the GDPR, the penalty is 5% of the global turnover, whereas in the draft data protection bill, it's a very set amount. So in situations like that where privacy is potentially violated, how can you possibly manage to achieve a balance? Okay, we'll take just one more. Is there anyone else? Uh, at the back, right at the back, one of the younger people there. Right at the back, yeah. You can move to the left. It's going to be blinded. Make it brief. Introduce yourself. And, uh, sure. Um, uh, good morning to everyone. Thank you, Minister, for your um, for your keynote. Um, I just had a short question regarding uh, India's position vis-a-vis -vis technology and um, you know um, how we're looking at G20. And just before that, introducing myself, I'm Prathit from uh, Council for Strategic and Defense Research. I wanted to ask that where do we see our regional potential in terms of India as a regional partner? And we know that this G20, we have pledged to present the South-South cooperation in the priorities of the South. Where do we see India's potential as a regional partner in terms of technology sharing, in terms of data? Are we looking forward to prioritizing that in the G20 and the upcoming initiatives? Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, Minister, we had three comments. Yeah, you can. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, uh, on climate, uh, we are actually already seeing the impact of climate events and uh, climate change on politics. Uh, I'll give you a very interesting example. Uh, you know, the big debate today is uh, uh, would Europe be able to survive uh, the winter uh, from the energy perspective? Uh, and obviously, you know, Europe has uh, tried to figure out solutions uh, which are different from their previous habits uh, before February 24th. But one factor in all of this is it's been an unusually warm year in Europe. And that's had a very big impact on actually their energy consumption. And it has a very uh, obvious consequence for, for uh, their calculations and their political stance as well. Uh, we ourselves, you know, uh, it was interesting in 2020 uh, when we were confronted, you know, with a challenge on uh, subsector north in Ladakh. Uh, in fact, again, it happened to be that year. Uh, unusually warm period, which actually enabled many of our divisions to move up, which if I had taken a statistical probability, it would have been much colder and more impossible uh, at uh, that time of the year. But these are, you know, these are kind of a, a, a trend line. 
but we are also going to have catastrophic events. You know, we've seen. I mean, you look at the floods in Pakistan. So, and if catastrophic events happen in production centers, now the catastrophic event can be climate, but you know, as we saw, it could be COVID. So, when you have concentrated production today, you are actually putting the entire world at risk. And in the de-risking, you know, pandemics is a lesson to learn. Conflicts are with if a passage through, say, Black Sea becomes a problem, that is a risk as well. But I would argue that increasingly, uh, climate, uh, extreme climate will also, and because it will be a more recurring uh, issue, uh, would be a worry. Uh, on the climate tech, yes, uh, you know, uh, you can see from 2014 that there's been a very uh, sort of different kind of approach uh, to the climate change challenge, you know different kind of approach in terms of, uh, you know, our policies, our advocacies, you know, our uh, our energy mix. Uh, but it's, it's a bit like digital and telecom. You know, uh, in a sense, uh, the, the one who has the least of the established systems has the ability to actually embrace uh, new possibilities. So... Uh, I do feel that when it comes to climate tech, I mean, India today has a range of possibilities. I mean, it, it can be a lab, it can be a, a application field, it can be a generator of technology, it, you know. So, uh, it, it is an area where, and again, you can actually see a lot of new businesses uh, uh, going, go, you know, when you go to a COP uh, today, you actually meet Indian businesses in climate, which... Uh, as a previous attender of COP, I can tell you, was not the case. You know. So this is like, and, and we are seeing this, you know, it could be defense, it could be digital, it could be climate. There is a different, uh, and why, you know, a whole uh, sort of energy uh, out there. Uh, on the, how do you get the balance, you know, on uh, on the digital? Look, I think what the Indian system today is doing is trying to find a balance between ease of doing business on the digital side, between uh, privacy and between national security. And they have to find the kind of a right uh, kind of mix uh, here. Now, uh, the Indian system today uh, does sort of uh, put out its uh, draft legislation and invite the world to, uh, to come in uh, with its views. And, and I'm sure those debates will happen and there'll be discussions, including obviously in the parliament, uh, on this issue and get this right. So, uh, it, I mean, people will always have views whether we are getting the right balance. That, that is natural. But it is certainly the endeavor of the government to get that right balance. The, uh, uh, the last question, you know, the region and what can we do and G20. Look, uh, I, uh, in the last three years, have traveled fairly extensively in the global south, in Africa, uh, in Latin America uh, this year, meet a lot of my uh, counterparts uh, out there. A lot of them, you know, uh, one of course was the whole COVID story, the vaccines, the platform, the fact that you got a va- we got a vaccination program, such a big one. Uh, actually done. But there's a lot of interest in actually digital, digitally enabled delivery. Uh, 
I mean, I was uh, actually sitting with the president uh, in the Middle East. And his, I mean, you know, I this this was almost like a, I mean, it was like deja vu. I mean, he was complaining about leakage. He was saying, you know, this much money leaves my capital and that much goes out there. Now, this sounded terribly familiar to me. Huh? Uh, and, you know, and he was asking, saying, look, I heard uh, about how you people have actually improved uh, service delivery, benefits delivery, uh, capability delivery with the help of a digital backbone. And when you look at our numbers, you know, I, I don't think even within the country these numbers have sunk into the minds of people. Uh, when you look at uh, Garib Kalyan, uh, the, the food program, the food program delivers to 800 million people, day in, day out. 800 million people. The, the putting the money in the bank delivers to 450 million people. The, if I take the, uh, you know, any tracking, any scheme today, uh, when I travel, you know, one of the things we do politically is actually at a meeting say, please tell me how many people have benefited from which scheme. We can actually track really who's getting the benefit of how many schemes and, you know, who's the eligible person and who is not. So there's a huge interest in the global south today at India's digitally enabled delivery system because it's actually a way today of creating a social safety net, uh, which five years ago people would have said a developing country cannot afford to do. So it's actually broken that fundamental presumption that social security is actually a wealthy society's prerogative. Digital can actually bring down your costs so massively. that uh, both the cost due to leakage, savage, but more than that, the, you know, the fact that it's a very targeted uh, delivery. So I think in the G20, you know, we'll still be firming up our priorities.